<laughs> 鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey Nate! Before we begin today, we have a sponsored message to read. I remember that. How could I forget? We need to thank the people who helped send us to the U.S. Okay, but more like in a conversation with me.、Less、I'm like- having a conversation with Emily. This is how I talk when I'm having a conversation. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> well, I just can't even have a normal voice. <laughs> yeah, we need we need to thank them. That was a huge deal. You know, I never thought that we would within our first year of our show. Go on tour, and that was because someone sponsored us to do it. And that's crazy. This episode is supported by the Cypress River Advisors, a U.S.-based technology and media strategic advisory firm. Is it the Cypress River Advisors or just Cypress River Advisors? <laughs> like, is the Cypress River a place? I I don't know what to say to that, but they do a lot of cool things. Yeah, they do, don't they? They sponsor ARPA-E, which is a new energy conference. They fund research into air pollution, air pollution monitoring. They also fund battery research. They do a lot of cool stuff, and I'm very grateful that they would support something which is rather soft, like our show. All right, play the tape. Hi, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not, Why Not, a podcast on how not to save the environment. I'm an environmental researcher based in Taiwan, focusing on ocean energy and waste issues. And I had promised you sweet, sweet 2020 Triple AS annual meeting content. I got to talk about fake news, conspiracy theories, and science denial with Dr. Stephen Lewandowski, chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol. So people will continue to rely on information they know to be false. We have shown that over and over and over again. When Emily Y. Wu and I were getting ready for AAAS, we looked through the conference catalog, seeing which talks we wanted to go to, which scientists we wanted to hear from. And most topics were pretty conventional. They were cool, but you know, pretty safe. Neuroscience, public health, coronavirus, carbon stuff, wildlife. Then we spotted this session called "Our Naive Ontology of Truth." Wow. Hashtag fake news. Hashtag Donald Trump. My trash bin lit up. If you listen to this podcast, you believe in science. I mean, I hope. Or you're. I mean, thanks for sticking around. You know, you, you probably believe in climate change, but we know. But we know. But we know. Not everyone believes in science. Some even think it's a conspiracy theory, a Chinese hoax. I had wanted to talk to people about conspiracy theories on this podcast, but fake news Emily Y Wu doesn't want the people to know the truth about chemtrails and how they might be a metaphor for the government poisoning our air supply, or how frogs are actually becoming transgender due to pesticides. She doesn't want you to know that. You know what she didn't want you to know though was our my conversation with Dr. Lewandowski. So I'm in it just to rewrite history, 'cause I'm in the mood to label us the leaders of the leaders of the new school. This ain't for the radio. Can't find this on YouTube. The question that was most interesting to me was why do people make conspiracy theories out of scientific facts, and more importantly, why do elected officials perpetuate these conspiracy theories and delay meaningful climate action? That's what I wanted to understand by talking with Dr. Lewandowski. 
Our conversation begins with his initial research on the Iraq war. Why did people believe in misinformation about that conflict? Why did they believe in weapons of mass destruction, WMDs, when the truth said otherwise? Well, it might be just because of how our brains are wired, or it might be because of George Soros. The only way to find out is to listen. Here it is, our very first live interview recorded at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences in Seattle in mid-February. And the theme of that annual meeting was envisioning tomorrow's Earth, something that I am extremely worried about. My name is Nate Maynard, Nature Nate, and I'm from Waste Not, Why Not, a podcast on how not to save the environment, produced by Ghost Island Media. We are a sustainability podcast and came from Taiwan, so we're kind of an ironic sustainability podcast. Today, we are on the AAAS annual meeting SciMic studio stage, presented by This Study Shows by Wiley. Today, I'm very happy to have Stephen Lewandowski join us. He is the chair of cognitive psychology at the University of Bristol, and we're going to talk about climate change denial and conspiracy theories. And before we get into that, you flew all the way from Bristol to come here, is that right? I did, yesterday, okay. yes. And so, what is so special about AAAS? What brings you here? Well, it's one of the major international conferences every year for the scientific community. And the specific reason I'm here is because the uh, European Union's Joint Research Center invited me to come participate in one of their panels this morning where I talked about some of the issues we're also going to be talking about. Okay, great. And is there one message that you're trying to get across at AAAS this year? Well, we can't give up. These are challenging times for scientists, uh, especially those who are working on issues that are politically relevant, which is actually a surprising number of us. Um, and in these challenging political times, being a scientist trying to conduct evidence-based research for evidence-based policy is, depending on what country you're in, sometimes very difficult. Okay, and your kind of public research started around 2007 on the Iraq war, is that right? Yes, that's about right. But of course, we started collecting the data sooner in 2003 during the actual um, invasion of Iraq. And what triggered this was that I was living in Australia at the time, and I was following the media coverage of the Iraq war. And one of the things I noticed is that a lot of information was put out by the media that then a few hours later was already retracted or corrected. You know, they had all these headlines about, oh, a chemical weapons factory has been found. And then two hours later, well, no, actually, it was, it was a, you know, a milk factory or something completely different. Or different kind of chemicals. Different kind of chemicals, indeed. And as a cognitive scientist, I thought that was fascinating because I was wondering what happened to people's memory of all these events if they're constantly being corrected. So we ran a study in the final phases of the Marines' drive to Baghdad before they actually got there in three different countries, in Germany, Australia, and the U.S. And we asked people questions about certain war-related events. And one of the things we found that was absolutely fascinating is that in our American sample, people who had heard of an event, who had also heard that it had been corrected, and who were certain that the event in question didn't actually happen that way, 
they also believed it to be true. And when we looked at that, we thought, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then we looked at the data more closely, and what we discovered was that the crucial predictor for this phenomenon was people's skepticism about the motivation underlying the war. People who questioned that it was about weapons of mass destruction were able to discard information that they knew to be false. And the people who weren't skeptical, who subscribed to the official reason for the war, they continued to believe things that they knew to be false. So you're a cognitive psychologist. Is this an inherent part of human nature? Was this like a, a, the way our brain was wired? Like you're going to be wired to support the war in this case? Well, this is, this is now the question that I'm still working on uh, nearly 20 years later. And yes, we do have some answers to that. I mean, and, and the answer has two parts, at least. The first part is this. As human beings, we are conditioned to believe things that we see or hear or that people tell us. And in 99% of all circumstances, that's a very rational thing to do because um, if I have no idea what to do, I go by what the neighbors do. I never, I can't remember when to take the rubbish out. Uh, is it a Tuesday night or Wednesday morning? So I just look out the window and I do what my neighbors do. And when they pull out their rubbish bins, I do the same thing. And it works. So it's a very adaptive thing to, to go with what, you, what you're told. So going with the tribe. Sort of going, going, with the going with the tribe, but also going with what people tell you. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that if I ask somebody what time it is, they're not going to lie to me. And of course, you know, that just doesn't happen in real life, that people would lie to you over that. Now, the problem with this is that there are situations, of course, where things turn out to be false even though you've heard them and you have accepted them as being true. Now, that can happen for any number of reasons. It can be by accident, it can be an honest error, but it can also be political propaganda. Now, when that happens, um, people find it inherently difficult to update their memories. We now have countless experiments where we show that people may say, oh, yes, you told me that was false, I know it's false, but 10 seconds later, they will demonstrably use that information when they answer another question. So people will continue to rely on information they know to be false. We have shown that over and over and over again. So that's the first part of the answer to the, okay. To okay. the question. And how does that, how does that connect with, with climate denial, connecting it to climate change? And especially in light of where we have specific groups that are manufacturing climate denial. It's not right. always just, you know, a skeptic. It's not random. It's not, yeah. it's not an accident. Indeed. You know. Indeed. Well, and, and this is how it connects, in fact, uh, how, how my work connects to the Iraq study, because I was fascinated by the role of skepticism in the Iraq war study. And then a couple of years later, in, in connection with the climate conference in Copenhagen at the time, I think it was 2000 and Nine, if I'm not mistaken, I think something like climate, that. Climate gate and that. Climate whole. gate and all that. What happened there was that there was this outbreak of so called skepticism, especially in the Australian media. And I thought, you know, I didn't know anything about climate change at the time. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Well, let's have a look at this because skepticism to me is a very good thing. So I checked this out and went there and thought, well, maybe these skeptics are onto something. And then it took me about, I don't know, oh, half an hour, an hour 
to discover that this has nothing to do with skepticism. The stuff that they were calling skepticism was just a, a fairly uh, random concoction of ideas that were mutually incoherent and that smelled of a conspiracy theory. And so for those that don't know, ClimateGate was related to the release of documents related to climate models during Copenhagen, and it really torpedoed the entire climate negotiations during that time period. That's just... Yeah. It was, it was climate scientists' emails, you yeah. know, tens of thousands of emails. Talking about models, talking about estimates, and if you don't know what those models relate to, then that sounds like they don't know, or they're making it exactly. up, or they're trying to make that model look and a certain way. And it was way. a wonderful, uh, strategically, you know, successful political operation to launch these personal emails, because you can cherry-pick things out of context. You can quote-mine anything to make people look like they're conspiring to do something, which is precisely what happened. And so that then got me going, um, and I started studying climate denial, and in fact, I've published a number of papers about the role of conspiracy theorizing in climate denial, and um, guess what? <laughs> there is an association between so, endorsement of conspiracy theories and the rejection of science. And it turns out it's not just climate science, it's also vaccinations, it's the link between smoking and lung cancer. Pretty much any scientific proposition that we agree on is being rejected by people who believe in conspiracy theories. We have a lot more exciting conversations with experts, scientists, researchers coming up in the coming weeks. And if you want to hear more of this kind of content, the best way to do that is to support us on Patreon. It costs money to fly. It costs money to go on tour. And if you support us through Patreon, we can do that more often. We could maybe even come to your city and talk to some experts there. Maybe you're an expert. We can come talk to you. Head on down to patreon.com slash waste not why not. So uh, become a Patreon and support us today. So are there certain conspiracy theories that are more likely to connect with climate denial? Because to me, I think flat earth would stand out. Sort of believing the earth is flat, you're not going to believe in climate change because you're not really even believing in the earth as we scientifically understand it. Well, I, I, I find the flat earth uh, situation fascinating, but I haven't studied it. And I never used flat earth uh, in my research because at the time I did my research, that didn't even exist. Um, so I, I can't answer that question about flat earth. And more generally speaking, I've avoided looking at specific conspiracy theories because for two reasons. Number one, it is very difficult. You've got to be super careful not to over state the conclusions from particular items if you're looking at people's psychological constructs. I, I think more often than not, you're doing what climate deniers do, which is to drill into noise mm. rather than see the pattern. So I'm more interested in the overall tendency of people to endorse more conspiracy theories overall. Um, moreover, some of the time at least, in some of the research, um, we don't ask people about specific conspiracy theories. We ask them more general questions such as, do you think that the fate of the world is determined by a number, a small number of influential people whose identity is not known? Now, that's not a specific conspiracy theory, but it sort of is hinting very much at it's a... Sort of hinting at the Illuminati, Bilderberg exactly. group. And not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, I just, you know... I know. Just know the words. I know. <laughs> you know the words, yes. And Soros is never far oh, yeah. away. Um, so, you know, so to answer the question, no, I don't think that any particular conspiracy theory is more linked 
to climate denial than okay. any other. It is simply that there is a small association between one and the other. So then is it a, is it a psychological disposition again to believing in conspiracy theories? Well, very interesting question. Um, yes, on the one hand, undoubtedly. We can predict whether or not people will believe in conspiracy theories on the basis of other aspects of their personality or their cognitive style. So people who engage in intuitive thinking and magical thinking, they also tend to endorse conspiracy theories. People who detect pattern and randomness, they tend to endorse conspiracy theories. And we also have sociological variables such as whether or not you feel left out or left behind, excluded by society, whether you feel that you don't have control over your life. You know, these are all factors that make people more predisposed to believe in conspiracy theories. Now, in the case of climate denial, what's very interesting is that the association between those pre predispositional factors and climate denial is actually relatively small. You know, it accounts for 5% of the variance, which is significant statistically, but it's not such a big deal. And so what I've looked at more recently, and in fact what I talked about this morning here at the meeting, is another factor that drives people into conspiratorial rhetoric. And that is something that I think is entirely rational and very effective politically. And what I mean by that is the following dilemma that is confronting people who deny science. One of the things about well-established science is that there's inevitably a scientific consensus. You will not get people to agree, scientists to agree on things, unless they've established a consensus that no one talks about any longer. I mean, medical researchers know that HIV causes AIDS, that smoking causes lung cancer. No one bothers to articulate this consensus. Right. We've done those calculations. It's all done. We, we know. It's, it's yeah, a done it's deal. The conversation has moved on. And the same is true for climate change, of course. There's a pervasive scientific consensus. I go to the meetings of the American Geophysical Union almost every year, and no one debates climate change. Now, it's a silly idea to even debate it because it's been established that it's happening and that we're responsible. So the debate goes elsewhere. Now, the problem is that if all the scientists agree on something that is really confronting to you, for example, because you're a libertarian and you think, oh my God, to deal with climate change, we have to put a tax on carbon, we have to put a price on carbon, we might have to regulate. All these are incredibly challenging ideas that are deeply emotional to people who hold strong libertarian views. So what do you do in that situation? How do you escape this dilemma between your worldviews and the evidence? Well, one way in which you can do that is to just say, oh, yes, all the scientists agree. Okay, but that's because they're in on a conspiracy. It's not because of the scientific evidence. It's because they're all liberals. They all want to create the world government. They're all, they're being all funded, funded by, by Soros. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. So... So you can then deploy that rhetoric to get yourself off the hook. And I've run a study recently where I show that that is precisely the case. So what predicts people's endorsement of conspiratorial reasons for the consensus on climate change is not their dispositional tendency to be a conspiracy theorist. What it is is their politics. 
It is their worldviews. Strongly libertarian, conservative participants, when confronted with the scientific consensus, will tell me this is due to a hidden political agenda and, you know, running after the money, etc., etc. All these conspiratorial reasons. And it's the politics that's driving it, not their disposition to be a conspiracy theorist. So then, so then this might be a difficult question, but then what do we do? What do we do in this world, in this era, where we have certain people in power disseminating these conspiracy theories, having these different politics? Is it, what's something that you know, we could do at a macro level? What's something we could do as individuals? Yeah. Well, at the macro level, I think one of the things you can do is you can what we call inoculate people against misinformation uh, generally, but also specifically uh, conspiracy theories. And um, I've done some work on that, so have others, Sander van der Linden at the University of Cambridge in particular. And what we show in a, in a number of studies, some of which haven't been published yet, what we show is that if you tell people in a brief video something about uh, the rhetorical techniques that have been used to mislead people, for example, if we tell people how the tobacco industry has used this technique of fake experts to create the appearance of a scientific debate long after that had been concluded, when we tell people about that, then they become more resistant to a similar strategy being used by climate deniers. So, so you inoculate them, but you might not want to tell them you're inoculating them because that might touch on some other conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, think, I think in our experiments, of course, we tell them this is an experiment, so they know they're in okay. the experiment. In reality, I think we can be totally transparent about it. We can say, well, look here, you know, this is a public service announcement. We know from research that misleading argumentation relies on the following ways to mislead you. Most people don't like being misled, if you ask them. So why wouldn't they watch a three-minute video that tells them something about cherry-picking or the role of incoherence in climate denial? We don't even have to mention climate denial. We can be totally generic in our training of people to recognize bad argumentation that is unlikely to be true. And we can do that without commenting on the content of the bad information itself which okay. I think is very important to Okay, so make, make videos, disseminate videos to people explaining the tools that are being used to mislead Precisely. Them. And then is there some, like, what about my weird uncle? Is, is, there, is there some way <laughs> the I can weird, talk to him? <laughs> the weird uncle. Everybody has a weird uncle. I, I wonder why it's always uncles. It's never parents. No one owns up to their parents being weird. It's always the uncle. I have yet to meet the brother who... who you know. Well, my parents were not pro-vaccine, I'll say that. <laughs> okay. Um, what can you do there? Well, it just, again, it depends on the context. If you're talking to somebody who's absolutely committed to the idea of climate denial or contrails or some other conspiracy theory, then, you know, having a casual conversation over a barbecue or a Thanksgiving dinner is probably not going to achieve anything other than get you upset. Uh, and the rest of the family, too, because it descends into a shouting match. Um, and I'm quite serious about that because when you look at the literature, the only literature we have that might apply to hardcore conspiracy theorists is the literature on deprogramming of extremists, former terrorists, political extremists, and how they got themselves out of that rabbit hole and how 
you know, through intensive discourse and therapy, you can get people out of that rabbit hole. And that's really what we're talking about here with hardcore conspiracy theorists who are, who are so far down the rabbit hole that any contrary evidence will be interpreted as evidence for their theory. This is, this is the backfire effect that you're talking about. Is that, is that it's, right? It's actually not. It's sort of an internal backfire effect. It's a recoding effect. It's called, refers to the self-sealing tendency of conspiracy theorists such that any contrary evidence they say is evidence for it. So if you're trying to talk mm. them out of it, then all they're saying is, see, the reason you're doing this is because the government is so keen on keeping the secret that they've trained you to make these arguments. That would right. be one example right. in which they reprogram it. So I would walk away from that, to be honest. I don't see any point in engaging with these people. Now, the good news is that they're actually very far and few between. Most people, even those who are deploying conspiratorial rhetoric, once you kind of say, well, hang on, why don't you think about this a little, and then ask questions about how, how can they, how would you explain that all the scientists in the world make this stuff up, you know, and then they say, oh, it's grant money, and then they say, well, how is grant money awarded? Tell me something about that. And sooner or later, it'll turn out that they don't know, and then you have an opening into that, and you can then say, well, actually, grant money is awarded by independent committees that don't have any political purpose. So... There are ways of dealing with right. So, so there is hope. Most people are not, yeah. you know, so embedded in conspiracies that they're no. irredeemable. Yeah, you can inoculate people. You can share yes correct information and how yes. others are being misled. Yes, and um, is is there anything else? We're yes, about, we're there's, about there's, winding well, up. Well, there's right? one other thing I want to talk about, uh, or I want to mention at least, because it goes to the broader political context and the political situation we're living in, and that is that. For example, the Republic of Ireland has had amazing success with two referenda recently in which they decided some highly emotive hot-button issues, namely abortion and gay marriage. Now, you can't really think of anything much more polarizing than those two issues. And yet they managed to avoid a deep polarization of the society. And the way they did it was by having citizens' assemblies that deliberated these issues for a year. A hundred randomly chosen Irish citizens convened for one weekend a month for a whole year to discuss the issue with the help of experts, submissions from the public, and moderated by a respected Supreme Court judge. And under those circumstances, in deliberative assemblies, Random citizens are totally capable of coming to very interesting evidence-based conclusions, even about controversial issues, because they're shielded from toxicity by demagogues, tabloids, Twitter. They're forced to think. They can't just click. And the moment you give people the chance to think, they think extremely well. So engaging with people, respecting them, letting them critically and think. Indeed, and doing it in a format where they're protected against uh, Twitter bots and uh, other people on Twitter whose names shall not be mentioned. Yes, yes, we will not mention him. Okay, we're about to wrap up. So I understand that you have a skeptic's handbook and you yes. have some tools that people can download and find to help them... Yes. Well, we published a debunking handbook quite some time ago, 
which is available at sks.to slash debunk. And we have another handbook forthcoming by the same authors, John Cook and myself, called The Conspiracy Handbook, which is not about how to design a conspiracy, but it's about how to debunk conspiracy theories. And we expect to release that in mid-April. So watch this space. Okay, that's great. Hopefully this episode will be out by then. Okay, thank you, Dr. Lewandowski. Thank you so much Thanks for joining for us. Thanks for having me. It's and um, please, everyone, read that handbook, and uh, let's stop conspiracy theories. <laughs> All right, thank you. This episode is brought to you by the United Nations Agenda 21 Initiative. We want to solve climate change by eliminating the thing that causes it, human beings. That's right. The only way to save our planet is through planned, sustainable degrowth. ID chips. We want to chip you. We want to know where you are. We want to know how much power you're using. We also want to put chemtrails. There's nothing to be chemtrails. Chemtrails. Just kidding. There was a joke ad because the UN Agenda 21 is a real thing, but it's not an evil thing. It's not a conspiracy theory. But what I just said is what some conspiracy theorists actually believe. They think that the United Nations is trying to form a new world order where a one world government, which has a small population and a rich ruling class that is run mostly by the Jews, exists. And they rule forever. And there's also race mixing, but it's also run by the Jews. So this is clearly a conspiracy theory. The UN is not trying to build death camps. They're not trying to create a new world order. They can't even recognize Taiwan. They can't even recognize Taiwan's awesome response to the coronavirus. So in order to help you spot these types of conspiracy theories and others, check out Dr. Stephen Lewandowski's new book, The Conspiracy Handbook, coming out in mid-April. We'll have a link in the show notes. I think the thing that I took away most from my conversation with Dr. Lewandowski and the thing that I've told other people since talking with him was that conspiracy theories are not necessarily just this like innate quirk of human nature. I mean, I always thought it was some of that, some ignorance, but really conspiracy theories are manufactured disinformation that is economically advantageous for certain parties. And then those people take advantage of people who are just naturally predisposed to conspiracy theories people who are economically disadvantaged, people who are politically disadvantaged, or people who feel either of those ways. That is a really helpful framework for thinking about climate denial because then it kind of frees you from having to convince every single person you meet who doesn't believe in climate change to believe in climate change. Because if you try and do that, you're just going to waste, I don't know, 20 years, which is what we've done. And which is why I'm probably, I'm never going to have a climate denier on this podcast because there's no point in that kind of debate. That is not a good faith argument. We can have a lot of debate about how we should address climate change, but I don't think we ever really need to debate should we address climate change because that is a physical fact. And this is useful because you can just save yourself a lot of time. You don't need to debate everyone especially if they are showing signs that they are not going to have a good faith argument with you. And I think the environmental community just wasted a lot of time with those debates. So why not have real conversations with people who are actually going to care about what you're going to say? Do you have a question for us? Email your voice recordings at ask at waste.whynot.com. 
Give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts. Seriously, we got one star recently. Become a monthly supporter on Patreon. We are Waste Not Wine on Patreon and Waste Not Pod on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. We actually have good Twitter content now. This has been Ghost Island Media Production. This episode is produced by Emily Y. Wu and myself, edited by Emily Y. Wu and Yu Chen Lai. Brain is on by Thomas Lee. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Head on down to patreon.com slash waste not why not.